Hello and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm John Kampfner, the Executive Director of our UK and the World Initiative. I'm sitting in for Bronwyn, who's taking a well-earned break this week. As regular listeners know by now, each episode we're joined by Chatham House experts, as well as journalists, policymakers, academics and former diplomats, to discuss the critical events shaping our world. In this edition, we'll be discussing a war that all too rarely makes the headlines, the devastating conflict in Tigray. How did Ethiopia, one of Africa's great success stories, collapse into civil war? By some estimates, Tigray is the single largest humanitarian disaster in the world today. What can be done? What are we to make of the recent moves towards peace? We'll also be returning to Ukraine, and to one particular and potentially disastrous repercussion. We'll be focusing on the threats to the Zaporizhia nuclear station. With reports of explosions near the plant, how great is the danger? Who is responsible? And what can the international community do to prevent a repeat of the disasters at Fukushima in Japan and at Chernobyl, just a few hundred kilometres away to the north of Kiev? Joining me in the studio this week are Dr. Patricia Lewis, the Director of our International Security Programme here at Chatham House. Hi there, Patricia. Hi, John. Joining her is Ahmed Soliman, a Senior Research Fellow on our Africa Programme. Welcome, Ahmed. Thank you, John, for having me. Finally, joining us down the line from Oxford is Galip Dalai, an Associate Fellow with our Middle East and North Africa Programme. Hello, Galip. Hello, John. First to Tigray in Ethiopia, where since 2020, a devastating civil war has been fought out between the government in Addis Ababa and the Tigray Defence Forces. With Eritrean troops reportedly fighting alongside Ethiopian government forces and multiple reports of war crimes, the conflict is by some estimates the largest in the world, with over 600,000 people killed in the fighting and nearly 3 million displaced. Last week in Nairobi, a peace implementation deal was signed, which in part sought to restart humanitarian access to Tigray. Ahmed, take us back to the beginning. How did Ethiopia collapse into civil war? Well, the two-year civil war started in November of 2020, but had been fermenting for several years beforehand. It's rooted in old grievances between Ethiopia's political elites, particularly those based in Ethiopia's ethnically-based federal regions. We had several years of unrest leading up to regime change, which came from within in 2018. And there's a legacy of territorial disputes between the regions, as well as prevailing culture of authoritarian rule for many decades. Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed's ascent to power in 2018, that ended nearly three decades of governance by the Tigray People's Liberation Front, which had really had a dominant role over Ethiopia's central government. This led to a a growing enmity between the Prosperity Party, which Abiy Ahmed created, and the Tigrayans, who accused the Prime Minister, of seeking to centralise power at the expense of the regions and in particular at the expense of the Tigrayans and really fighting Tigrayans within the government and outside. In turn, the government accused the TPLF of being an obstacle to change. And really what we saw was that both sides couldn't be brought together neither internally or externally. And the rejection of each other's position spiralled out of control uh, and really was triggered by the Tigray Regional Administration holding unilaterally 
regional elections in September of 2020, which then ultimately was the spiral towards the war beginning. But what seems to be a sort of territorial skirmish, a battle for political supremacy is one thing, but the extent of the death toll, the extent of the acceleration is really something to behold. How come? I think what we have here is long-held grievances and they're being played out. And they're not just internal to Ethiopia. We see regional parties, regional neighbours at the forefront of this conflict as well with the Eritrean involvement in the conflict in Tigray, Sudanese engagement and other neighbours to being party uh, to the conflict, whether or not negatively or trying to resolve the conflict. We've seen a war that has had several phases widespread atrocities, crimes against humanity on both sides, committed and documented, and an emerging humanitarian catastrophe in Tigray. There's no doubt about that. The conflict has spread throughout the north of Ethiopia. So what started in Tigray has spread to neighboring regions in Amhara and Afar. Fighting also threatened to reach the region, the nation's capital, Addis Ababa, about a year ago now, before And as I mentioned, the involvement of Eritrea in particular, their forces in support of the Ethiopia's federal government has been hugely contentious and massively destructive. And at the epicentre, can you just paint a picture, if you could, on just how bad it is, how great the humanitarian crisis is? The crisis is astronomical. I think the UN estimates that across northern Ethiopia now, a million people need urgently food aid. 90% of Tigray's 6 million people food insecure at this stage. And we're talking about several hundred thousand people having been killed, as you mentioned. Statistics are very hard to verify because there's been a regional blackout. So we don't really know how many, but certainly several hundred thousands in the Tigray region, thousands more in Afar and the Amhara region have been killed in this conflict. So we're talking about certainly the worst disaster human-made conflict in the world at this moment in time and certainly for decades across this planet. And what about the world? What about outside forces? Well, I think we've, we've had now an international response that's been ramped up to try and bring the parties together. I think that's been a very good thing. But in terms of the, as I mentioned, the neighbouring countries, the most destructive role has, is, that has been played by Eritrea. Uh, Eritrea has played, has had forces and now currently does have forces inside the Tigray region committing atrocities and, as they would argue, securing their own national interests. And the African Union and the United Nations, all this time in this incredible bloodshed, why has there been so little political progress? The AU has been in the forefront of the diplomatic efforts, supported by the broader international community. I would say in fighting, dragging of heels, a lack of willingness on the parties to come to an agreement until now has played the major role in, in why it's taken two years to get to this point. But we do now have a permanent ceasefire Secession of Hostilities Agreement, which was signed at the beginning of November, as well as further talks in Nairobi to to move towards implementation of the agreement. How solid is that agreement, do you think? It's as solid, really, as the party's <laughs> commitment to it. And that's yet to be tested, I would say. We've had early signs that are positive because we see that, that, that humanitarian assistance is moving back into Tigray, but we're still yet to test that further and see how much that can be ramped up. Aid agencies are moving 
aid as quickly as they can in, but it's a drop in the ocean. What we need also is for the blockade that that has been impacting Tigray to be lifted to services, electricity, communications, banking. These things have been absent in the region for since 20, the summer of 2021, largely. This will be the next step and hopefully confidence building measures that come from an increased humanitarian response can move things forward. The Tigrayan leadership are trying to sell this deal that they have made internally within the Tigray region, and it's contentious. And the Ethiopian federal government, I think, are confident in the deal that they have made, but there are outliers. We mentioned Eritrea as one, but there are other armed groups from the Amhara region, in particular also the Afar region, who are not part of this deal, are not signatories to this deal, and could potentially still be spoilers to any sustainable peace. And talking about side forces, Galib, question for you. Can you explain Turkey's role? Because to the outsider, that seems really quite bizarre. I think the Turkey's role in Africa, not only in Tigray, because like in Ethiopia, Turkey is providing the defense equipment, particularly drones to the Ethiopian, to the government sites. And that in itself is quite important that Turkey is actively selling the defense, selling the weapons to and to to, to a warring side, but also how that all indicate how much the Turkey's overall geopolitical identity in Africa has changed. A decade ago, when you talk about Turkey's role in Africa, you would probably have talked mostly about from a humanitarian dimension. Let's not forget that President Erdogan was the first international leader to travel to the famine-stricken uh, Somalia in 2011 to create international awareness about the dire humanitarian situation there. And through these humanitarian activities in Africa, Turkey tried to fashion an image for itself internationally, trying to host the least developed countries. Summits in, in Istanbul, in Turkey, try to utilize a heavily humanitarian language. But if you look at in recent years, the nature of Turkish role, the nature of Turkish involvement in Africa has been increasingly acquiring a geopolitical and security links. Yeah, because there's been, there was that, there was that. Because there was that recent summit, wasn't there, Turkey with Africa. What is Erdogan trying to do? What is he trying to achieve? I think that Africa has been one of the success stories of uh, Turkish foreign policy. Just look at the numbers. In 2003, the, uh, the total volume of the Turkish-African trade was $5 billion. Now it's 25 billion. In early 2000, Turkey only had 13 embassy in Africa. Now the number of Turkish diplomatic missions in Africa is almost 40, 30, 37 or 38. Turkey has become major hub for flight to Africa and Africa is increasingly becoming a market for Turkey, increasingly expanding defense industry. So this is good in terms of trade. This is good as a market for Turkey's fast developing defense industry, but this is also good for Erdogan's projecting power politics because through the activism in Africa, through the activism in its surrounding region, Turkey is manifesting that it is a major regional and international actors. And we saw this clearly in Ethiopia. We are seeing this in Somalia. So Turkey has its largest overseas military base open in Somalia in 2017, which can train 1,500 soldiers at that time. So that Africa policy is bringing Turkey the geopolitical benefits, very much economic benefits, the image benefits, and also major market for its defense industry. 
So the turkey is using this for different purposes with different actors. And you increasingly see the interconnection between the crises you know, and rivalries in the Middle East and Africa. So therefore, the Africa also becomes an important context for rivalry with other actors. And Patricia, I'd like to bring you in here wearing your geopolitical hat. I find it fascinating to countries like Turkey, call them pivot states, call, call them regional powers with global reach, label we wish to ascribe to them. Turkey has influence pretty much everywhere. I'll come to, to Ukraine and Russia in a second, but this Turkish, these Turkish inroads into Africa, we focus so much on superpower rivalry, the Americans and the Chinese and Belt and Road and the different soft power and hard power rivalry going on. How would you describe what is going on now with so many regional actors playing important roles across the global south and particularly in Africa? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think they always have. We call it creative power, where they take their geography or they take their position in a regional group, for example, and make the most of it. They prove useful. They do all sorts of things, but they also do it in their own interests. So they can flex their own power, which on the world stage is somewhat limited, but in the region, it has enormous influence. And Turkey's geography has always been such that Turkey will play a very important role in the Middle East in Africa, in Europe. And of course, Turkey is a really important country when it comes to migration. And it's a really important country. It's in NATO, but not in the EU. So it gives it a very special role in that sense. And I think then, of course, its role on the Black Sea, which we're seeing in, in Ukraine, its longstanding engagement with Israel, its willingness to stand up to Russia. If you remember some time ago during the Syrian conflict, planes were doing, uh, Russian planes were doing their buzzing over Turkey. And Turkey said, do that one more time, we shoot it down. Did it one more time, they shot it down. And who else dares do that with Russia? And what do the Americans, what do the Chinese make of this kind of power play? I think they find Turkey quite useful. Certainly the United States does have a good standing member of NATO. And it has been very supportive in many ways of the NATO stance in this war that Russia has created against Ukraine. And so I think Turkey in that sense has a really important role to play. But on the other hand, Turkey is a really major big partner for so many other countries. Let's not forget the countries in South Asia, countries in Southeast Asia, China, you mentioned. Turkey is this crossroads country. And rather than get trampled on, as a crossroads country might, it's always had much more agency in its region than allowed that to happen. And to any of you, the whole question of, if we just pivot a little bit towards Ukraine and the Russian invasion, and I'll ask you specifically, Patricia, in a second about the nuclear dimension of that. But again, with reference to Turkey and to these increasingly influential states, when it brokered and then rebrokered the grain deal after the Russians uh, threatened to to scupper, scupper that, Ahmed, tell us a little bit more about that and the relationship now that Turkey has and its reputation in. Africa, particularly in light of what it's been doing in Ukraine? Turkey's relationship in Africa, Turkey specifically, is very strong. And as Gallup mentioned, since 2011, it really has put a flagpole down in the eastern part of, of the continent in particular, which has spread much further through its support on the humanitarian front. Of course, culturally, historically, religiously, there are very strong links as well to a number of countries on the continent. And that is why the connection with Somalia is very strong. 
economically, I don't think we should negate the importance of Erdogan's neo-Ottomanism from a from an economic perspective, because we're looking at the spread of a small and medium-sized enterprises from Tur- Turkey into the African continent. We're looking at the growth in terms of construction industry, in terms of pharmaceuticals, in terms of textiles, and these companies and their importance and trading relationships. I think Turkey's strongest economic partnership on the African continent is with Ethiopia. And that has come through its relationship with Somalia. So these have developed over time and become stronger. And of course, we see the defense industry as part of that increasingly as well, and defense relationships being strengthened between uh, governments in Africa and with the, with the Turkish government too. And I think that has helped. Certainly when, it, when you're talking about the war in, in northern Ethiopia, key turning point at the end of last year was the Ethiopian government being able to procure drones. And that really turned the tide in the conflict in their favor and and pushed the Tigrayan forces back into Tigray. Let's move on specifically to Ukraine and to Zaporizhia in the south of the country. And for me personally, it's a case of back to the future. Three and a half decades or so ago, I was based in Moscow as a young journalist when Chernobyl happened. Not that anybody in Russia knew about it at the time because the whole thing was hushed up and the mushroom cloud engulfed Western Europe and Central Europe, but the Russians were left in the dark. They're taking, albeit the context is different now, they're taking what seems to be just as cavalier approach to what is going on in Zaporizhia, which finds itself right at the front line of the conflict and of Russia's invasion, constant shelling. They've occupied the plant since the early weeks, since March, putting its 3,000 workers under intense pressure. And although the plant isn't generating power at the moment, it does need stability to cool its nuclear rods. There are frequent reports of explosions. The situation's increasingly dangerous. Um, Patricia, give us a sense of what the dangers are and what the international community is trying, seemingly unsuccessfully, to do. It's a really peculiar situation, isn't it? They first of all attacked Chernobyl and obviously that was a pivotal point in where they wanted to be in the war. And then, as you say, Zaporizhia since March. And it's been on and off all the time. The Security Council has addressed it. The International Atomic Energy Agency have experts going in and out of there now all the time. They were. There was a statement made by the Director General just this week saying that they had been in since the latest shelling and that nothing was of immediate urgent concern. There were some long-term issues, but if they keep on shelling, of course, we can't be sure how that will stay. And this has been the problem all along. So there are six reactors there. Four of them are in what's called cold shutdown and two of them are what's called hot shutdown. And the hot shutdown ones are providing some heat and steam for the local area. But it's a very dangerous situation. And the question is that I keep on struggling with, who would want to do this and why? At the beginning, it was Russia doing this. That was clear. Ever since then, the Russians have been saying that it's been Ukraine shelling. Why would Ukraine shell its own nuclear power reactor? Of course it wouldn't. And from everything I've been able to work out, from talking to people in the international community, is it's Russia shelling. But they're shelling a place where they've got their own people. 
right? And, and their own forces. And their own forces and their shelling. It's part, obviously, of their whole approach to trying to deprive Ukraine of power for the winter. Yep. So that's clear. I think there's two other reasons why they might be doing this. One is the fear that the rest of Europe might feel. And you mentioned Chernobyl. Of course, we've also seen Fukushima. This is a plant yeah. much more like Fukushima, by the way. Right. Wouldn't be like Chernobyl. That was a graphite reactor which burnt. And you saw, as you say, the big cloud that went up yeah. and spread all over Europe. This would be much more like Fukushima, but it would be really terrible for the area. And it could indeed spread radioactivity around Europe again. And we saw that intimidation with Putin warning of nuclear war. Oh, nuclear weapons. That's yeah. a and, whole new story. And that yeah. was pretty much slapped down remarkably also by the Chinese and the Indians yes, and, and others. And NATO. And NATO. And he mm. seems to have quietened down on that front. Mm. So you see this as part of a sort of deliberate intimidation strategy. Absolutely. And I think there's a third reason, which isn't talked about much. And that is that 20 years ago, the US and its allies against Russian insistence went to war against Iraq on the issue of weapons of mass destruction. And what we see with Putin is that he keeps on using weapons of mass destruction, be those chemical weapons in Salisbury or against some political enemies, or he talks all the time or they talk all the time about the biological weapons and saying that they're in Ukraine, which they're not. And then this and whole nuclear thing. And Syria, of course. And then there's this whole nuclear thing. So what I think he also does is very subtly reminds people of how their governments got it wrong over weapons of mass destruction 20 years ago. So I think there's that disinformation channel for him in that regard. That's interesting. That's an aspect I, I hadn't really cottoned on to. So from where we are now, what can the IAEA, what can the international community do? There, there are some, a small number, half a dozen or so international observers at the, at, at the plant, are there not? They seem to be under the same kind of the intimidation that everybody else is under. Do you have any sense of what they're able to achieve? One of the things they're doing is monitoring, making sure that the equipment that sends information back to Vienna is still intact, making sure that things are safe and if they're not alerting. I have to say the international inspectors led by Raphael Grossi, I have been extraordinary right from the beginning. Grossi took in a group into Chernobyl right at the beginning as soon as he possibly could, putting himself in personal danger. And this is the kind of leadership we've been seeing from the UN, actually. Whether it's been behind the scenes, have you mentioned the, the grain deal with Turkey, whether it's been going to Moscow, whether it's been uh, also talking at NATO, they've, they've had this quiet diplomacy and this willingness, including the humanitarian workers, to put themselves at risk. So I think we should take a moment to really appreciate that. I think as well, in terms of the wider nuclear weapons issue, which would be far worse than any nuclear power disaster, again, NATO has shown extraordinary restraint. NATO has three nuclear weapon states, right? The US, the UK and France. And when Putin has made these threats of using nuclear weapons, and some of them have been directly against or implied against the UK, not so much against, they haven't been directly against Ukraine. We've assumed Ukraine would be the target, but not necessarily. But when they've made these threats, NATO has not responded in kind. And I think this is one of the pieces, again, that we need to start thinking about in this really quite different response from NATO. Ukraine has not attacked Russia. Ukraine has not been supplied with the sorts of weapons that Russia has been using, like cluster munitions and landmines. And we're not responding in kind with the threats of chemical or nuclear or anything like that. We've shown 
the values, if you like, the values that have been developed from the laws of war, the international humanitarian law, human rights law. Which just seems to enrage the Kremlin even more. We'll have lots of opportunity in future podcasts to, sadly, because this is going to last the winter and one fears much longer, talk about other aspects of the invasion of Ukraine. But Gallup, as, as we have you here, just let's talk a little bit more about Turkey and its role in in this. Is it? Do you see it as a peace-broking role? In recent days, it seems to be almost angling for a Russian defeat with arms sales to Ukraine. What is Erdogan looking for? Well, I think that Turkey is playing multiple roles here. Let's not forget this war is taking place in Black Sea. And besides Ukraine and Russia, the Turkey is also a major Black Sea power. One angle of it is geopolitical, because the Turkey doesn't want the balance of power in the Black Sea to dramatically change in favor of Russia. And historically speaking, The center of gravity in Turkish-Russian competition from the imperial times has been very much centered on Black Sea. Let's not forget Turkey, the Russian Empire and the Ottoman Empire for 13 times. There is no any comparable number with any other Western, with any Western countries. And the Black Sea has been almost most of the time the center of this conversation. So the first one is the geopolitical. And that's how you see from the earlier on, Turkey was one of the countries that provided the Ukraine with the defense equipments, with Armstrongs. Secondly, the Turkey tried to play a diplomatic role, trying to facilitate negotiation at a different level. Let's not forget recently the, the chief of CIA and his Russian counterpart, they met in Ankara, hosted by the Turk, the chief of intelligence, the Turkish chief of intelligence. We saw the exchange of hostages taking place in Turkey as well too between Russia and Russia and the United the US so there is the diplomatic aspect of it the thirdly is the humanitarian as we saw through the grain deal and all of them all this combined is helping Turkey's international stature or international image so what would Turkey want one clear goal is basically Russia not to win So what does it mean Russia not to win? Might not be very clear, but it's clearly Russia not achieving its aim in Ukraine would be one of the major goals of Turkish diplomacy. Let's not forget Turkey and Russia engage in several conflict zones on the different sides of the table. In Syria, in Libya, in Nagorno-Karabakh, the both countries are trying to project power in their shared, shared regions. So the Turkey definitely would want a weakened Russia because a weakened Russia means the Russian grip over the Central Asia, which Turkey would call the Turkic uh, world, would weaken because uh, the Central Asia is Russia's backyard, but it is also the Turkic world. And it's very much the idea of Turkish world or the Turkic world is very appealing in Ankara. So that means the Turkey will gain grounds vis-a-vis Russia there. Or that means in Caucasus or in Black Sea or even in Syria, the Turkey will have more leverage vis-a-vis Russia. I'm not sure what the Turkey... Turkey would want a defeated Russia completely because a failed state Russia would be also quite concerning for Turkey. But a weakened Russia will be definitely appealing appealing to Turkey. 
That's completely fascinating. It's a 21st century version of 19th century realpolitik and wielding influence being on one side in one conflict and on the other side in the other conflict. Lest we forget, tens, hundreds of thousands of Russians are now in Turkey as their either their escape hatch or their... Hundreds of thousands, actually. Yeah, and their new second home. We'll have to draw it coming up to the end of this podcast, but I just wanted to ask all three of you briefly, if I could... Just to reflect on these two conflicts and more specifically how they are portrayed to the world. There seems to me, seems to all of us, a glaring, glaring mismatch between the saturation coverage that is given to the conflict in Ukraine and the almost complete silence, certainly in the Western media, of conflicts such as Tigray, such as Yemen. Syria has completely disappeared from pub- public view. What is your view about that? Do people just reach saturation points, war fatigue in particular conflicts? I think so. I think there's a bandwidth, certainly, that that gets crossed. Unfortunately, certainly from our perspective, sitting in London, looking from the West, I think the conflict in Ukraine receives priority, it receives more resources, more attention, as we've discussed today, seems more pertinent to global geopolitical competition, even though we've touched upon the importance in terms of global geo-competition to, to, of the Tigray conflict in, in part as well. But I think, I think the African continent was, suffers from that. But at the same time, there is an international response. It maybe doesn't get the attention in the media that we that we would like, but there, there certainly is international response and leverage. And that in part in Tigray has led to a ceasefire agreement at this stage. And Gallup, your thoughts on this briefly? I think the three dimension is important. One of them is in terms of attention, because right now the attentions are focused on Ukraine, on Russia, and that unfortunately is taking away from other crises that re- that requires still very much attention and also resources. The secondly is is the consequences of this conflict, because let's not forget the conf- this conflict is generating the fear of food security, and the countries that will be primarily victim of this food security, unfortunately, are located in Africa, in Middle East, and Asia. Yeah, and the third the is the narrative. Uh, the narrative. I think one thing that the Western policymakers made got it wrong. Initially, they portrayed this war as NATO versus Russia. But for this conflict to be understood in Africa, that should be portrayed for what it is. This is a new colonial war by Russia, new imperial war by Russia, subjugating another sovereign countries. And this is not Russia in projecting influence. This is do, this is Russia wanting dominating its surrounding regions in a very 19th century colonial way. And I think that should be the lenses through which this war, the story of this war needs to be t- told to the rest of the world so that they can relate to it. Patricia, surely NATO, the last thing NATO wanted was for this to be portrayed as NATO versus Russia. Exactly. It's Russia who keeps calling it a a war against NATO. Ukraine has brought NATO into it and saying, first us, then you. So if we fail, you're next. And so in a sense, that colonialization, as you say, of Ukraine, which Russia certainly is trying, attempting to do, is, is Ukraine has been wanting to shift that narrative. It's certainly not, I think, where NATO wanted to be. I wanted to say, though, I think that what does make a difference 
is that the aggressor in this case is a permanent member of the UN Security Council, a founding member of the United Nations, an ally in the Second World War, and a possessor of nuclear weapons. And that does make a material difference on the ground. And that's why I think there's so much more attention paid to it. A big thank you to our guests, because we've come to the end of time today, to Patricia, to Galip, and to Ahmed. You can follow our speakers on Twitter, as well as the work of our MINAP, our Africa and International Security programs. You can find all of Chatham House's podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and all the major podcast platforms, as well as via our social media channels. Do follow and subscribe, and please do leave us a review. To read more from our expertise around the world, to find out more about our events or to become a member, don't forget to visit our website, chathamhouse.org, where you can follow the continuing work of our colleagues. Over the past week, just this week, we've published work on COP27, the G20 Summit, Britain's continuing economic travails and South Africa. Bronwyn's back next week. I hope you've enjoyed this edition. From me, John Kampfner, goodbye. Goodbye.